Let's pray first, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do thank you today for the wonder of your word. We thank you that you're a God who speaks to us and gives us a clear message to your character and to your purpose and to your glory. And we thank you for what we've been looking at the last few weeks, these signs that uh, Jesus did to communicate your glory and the wonder of the work of your salvation through him and for us. So we pray once more that you would give us attentive ears as we listen to your word and help us to be receptive to what Stephen will bring uh, from it. We pray your blessing upon his message too. May it go deep into our hearts and into our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading today from John chapter 4 and verses 43 to 54. I think it's on page 753. 753 in the Bibles, if you have them. After two days, um, Jesus left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus had performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. When I was a student at uni at Wagga, occasionally uh, we'd go around and, and just talk to random people that we met, usually in the student union where people were having lunch, and we'd see if they wanted to talk about Jesus. And if they did, we'd just sit down and have a conversation. One time I was, I was doing this with a friend, and um, everything was going really great this day. We, we bumped into this... this um, group of international students and they were really keen to talk. So we sat down and we, and we started to talk about Jesus. But then something seemed to be going wrong in our conversation. We realised that something was just not quite right. We were getting confused looks from them and the welcome just seemed to evaporate all of a sudden. And then one of them said to us, Ah, oh, Jesus, we thought you were going to be talking about Jesus. It's really hard to recover a conversation from that point. 
We sort of floundered around for a while. There was just no getting back on track. For some reason, they thought they were welcoming a couple of cheesemakers rather than a couple of annoying Christians. Well, in today's passage, we see a mixed up welcome. And unfortunately, it's not a funny sort of mix up like that one was. It's a more serious case of mistaken identity. Look at verse 43, where we see this. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. That sounds a bit threatening, doesn't it? Jesus is coming back to his home region and we're told to expect that he won't be honoured there. But look at the very next verse in verse 45. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. These two ideas, they they seem to contradict each other. We're expecting Jesus to be dishonoured, but instead we read, he's welcomed. What's going on? What's John saying to us here? Well, he's saying that even though Jesus is welcomed, he's not honoured. There's a difference somehow. Somehow they're mistaking his identity. They're welcoming him on the wrong basis. Did you see on what basis they welcomed Jesus in 45? They had, all, they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, we read. For they also had been there. Now we've just jumped from one sign, the wedding at Cana, straight to this next sign. But in between these two events, Jesus says he's been up to Jerusalem, he's cleared the temple and he's done other signs that John doesn't write down. In chapter 2.23 we read that while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. See, they welcome Jesus because of what they've seen. And it all sounds pretty good, really, on the surface when you read it, doesn't it? John wants us to believe in Jesus. That's why he writes down what he saw. You remember the end of the book that we've talked about lots of times in in 2031. And remember that, that signs are supposed to evoke faith. That's what we saw last week with Mike's diagram for us in the Bible study booklets. But even though people believed in Jesus up at the Passover in Jerusalem... We read in 2.24 that Jesus didn't believe in them. We read Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. Jesus knows something about their belief that we don't. There's something inadequate about it. It's a kind of belief that that welcomes him, but doesn't honour him. Let's have a look at how this pans out in the story In verse 46, we read, Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he'd turned the water into wine. So he's back in Cana, which is interesting, because two of the six signs that John records for us happen in Cana. And today's sign, like the first sign, happens when Jesus is returning from Judea to Galilee. And what John wants us to notice here is that Jesus has done a full circuit. Last week was the end of his first week in ministry. This is the end of his first phase in ministry. It's a good point to really evaluate how people are responding to him. And we do this 
through the journey of a royal official. Verse 46. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Just stop and think what it's like for this guy. Sometimes it's easy just to read these things and and not really get the personal element. He's somehow connected to Herod Antipas. He's either a relative or he's an official in his administration. His son's desperately sick, dying. Now, I, I personally don't cope too well when my kids are sick. I tend to be the one who worries the most. I have this habit of sleeping on their floor just so I can stay awake all night listening to them cough. I sympathise with this guy. He's, he's heard of Jesus. I mean, maybe he was even one of the people who had seen Jesus up in Jerusalem. And he's starting to get desperate. He's seen this kind of sickness before. The extreme fever. The delusional, unresponsive, unresponsive child. Being a, a small kid was statistically dangerous back in those times. And chances are this guy's probably already lost someone, if not already lost a child before. And he knows that this is only going to end in one place. Death. He's there at home, worrying, feeling powerless. But then he hears the report. Jesus is back in Galilee. In fact, someone's just come over from Cana that morning where they saw him. And so that night he makes up his mind. He's going to walk to Cana the next day and he's going to do whatever he can to get Jesus to come back with him. It's a big step to leave the bedside of of someone who's dying. It's always a risk that you might squander the, the hours that you have left. But this guy believes that Jesus can do this. Or at least he believes that it's his best shot. So at daybreak, he leaves Capernaum. He walks the 23 kilometers to Cana. He finds Jesus just before 1pm and he begs him to come back with him. But Jesus says something that probably shocked him and probably should shock us too. Look at verse 48. Jesus says, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you'll never believe. Why does Jesus say this? It sounds so callous, doesn't it? It sounds heartless. And is it even accurate? I mean, this guy has left his dying son's side and walked seven hours. Surely it's because he already believes in Jesus. To understand what Jesus is is saying here, first of all, notice Jesus doesn't just say this to the royal official. He's speaking to everyone. Jesus says, unless you people see, to use the more um, correct Australian English, it's unless yous see. (laughs) Unless you see miracles and wonders, yous will never believe. He says it to the royal official, but he uses that plural language why are the Galileans welcoming Jesus well it's only because of his signs and wonders they're not really honoring Jesus they're not welcoming him because of who he is 
They're interested in the spectacle, the entertainment. And so they actually miss where the signs are pointing. Now even the royal official here hasn't got Jesus right. Why is the news that Jesus is in town welcome news to him? It's because of of what he can get rather than because of who Jesus is. Now I'm not judging him. Gosh, I mean I'd be exactly the same. I've been exactly the same. I've stood by the hospital bed of my kids before. But there's no denying his welcome of Jesus and the Galileans' welcome of Jesus, it's based on their own self-interest. And Jesus calls that kind of welcome for what it is. See, it's not just inadequate. It's dangerous. Because it misses who he is but it doesn't realize that it's missing it. In some ways, in the end, it's better to have no idea about Jesus than to have the wrong idea. And in a minute, we'll see that Jesus gives this royal official the opportunity to change how he views him. Jesus is not being callous and heartless here. This is actually truthful love. And with Jesus, that's what you'll always get, truthful love. Before we move on in the story, though, it's it's worth just stopping here and just thinking about this terrifying thought that we've seen, that you can welcome Jesus and at the same time be dishonouring him. See, the problem with the Galilean approach to Jesus is it's not enough. It's damning him with faint praise. Have you heard that expression before? It's like asking your boss for a reference and he writes something like this. To whom it may concern, Stephen has worked here for 15 years. He is punctual, adequately presented and smells above average. (laughs) They're all good things, aren't they? But if I'm going for a job as a minister, that's a pretty damning reference, isn't it? I mean, is that what you want in a minister? Someone say yes just then. (laughs) You want a lot more, don't you? Here's another reference that's damning. It's a reference that welcomes Jesus, but in the end it actually dishonours him. I did once seriously think of embracing the Christian faith, the gentle figure of Christ, so patient, so kind, so loving, so full of forgiveness that he taught his followers not to retaliate when abused or struck, but to turn the other cheek. I thought it was a beautiful example of the perfect man. Gandhi beautifully praises a side of Jesus. But because that's all he sees, he misses and therefore he diminishes Jesus' true glory. In the end, tragically, this this reference is damning him with faint praise. Because we see this all around us today. A lot of people live their lives not being opposed to Jesus, believing Jesus is a great moral teacher. An inspirational example. A good bloke. But that's still damning him with faint praise. But I actually want to bring the spotlight a little bit closer to home. Where do we see us Christians welcoming Jesus but not truly honouring him? Another way to look at this is to ask, where are we at risk of welcoming Jesus based on self-interest? Disconnected from who he is. 
there's a dangerous trend among us Christians to approach God, to relate to God, even to worship God in a human-centered way. Do you know what I mean? Does this sound familiar? There's a God-sized hole in our hearts that only Jesus can fill. Come to God and you'll be filled. Now there's truth in what I just said. And in fact, if you think about it, it sounds a lot like last week in many ways. But if we come to Jesus simply to make our problems go away and, and to enhance our life, then we're welcoming him, but we're actually dishonoring him. We don't come to Jesus to top up our life. We come to him because he is in himself life. Knowing him is life. Knowing him is the treasure. It's, it's not the way, the means to some other treasure. Sometimes it's, it's like us Christians talk about Jesus like he's our life coach. He guarantees my happiness. He guarantees my health. And sometimes we even talk like he guarantees my wealth. And even our worship of God can be about what it does to me, how it uplifts and, and refreshes me, how it, how it makes me feel. Now, feeling uplifted in worship, Jesus as a coach in life, these aren't bad things. They're inadequate things. If that's why we've come to Jesus and, and that's the extent of how we relate to him, then we've dishonored him. But actually, I want to bring the spotlight even closer now to us, even closer to home. So Jesus doesn't write down this, sorry, John doesn't write down this, this challenge to faith here, this challenge to belief so that we can look down on others out in the world, out in other churches. He writes this for us to evaluate our own belief, to ask us, is our own belief in Jesus adequate? Or am I, Stephen George, damning Jesus with my own faint praise. So if someone was to write a biography about me, and if they did an absolutely exceptional job so that they, they really got the truth about my actions and particularly the motivations behind my actions, how would that biography read? Now, maybe you're thinking it, I definitely am, it would be boring. But putting that to the side, would the biography read on every page... At every event, me honouring Jesus. Would it read with me praising Jesus intensely or faintly? Now, I'm not saying, of course, would the book have me saying, hallelujah, praise God all the time, because that's, that's irrelevant for truly praising God. I mean, would it have my life saying hallelujah? Would it have my life saying praise God? Does the way I, I talk to my kids or... Or my wife, the way I, I do my work, what I think when I see that homeless person, how I spend my money, does who I have around for dinner or, or what I even do today here behind the scenes, or my web browsing history, do they all show that Jesus is at the centre of my existence? Where is Jesus welcome in, in your life? Where does he fit? Is he a concern that kind of fits among many that, like you can see up there, he comes under family or under leisure? 
Well, that's inadequate, of course, isn't it? Or, is he at the top of your priorities? He comes before work. He comes before family. You know what? Even that is inadequate. We honour Jesus when he's welcome in every part of our lives. When he touches every aspect of our being. Jesus is not the top priority. He commands every priority, every habit, every desire. We need to be crystal clear about who we're welcoming when we come to Christ. Abraham Kuyper puts it well. He says, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Just think about that. A square inch. Not a square inch that Christ doesn't cry, mine. Christ already owns everything. He, he owns every one of us. Our welcome of him in the end is not really where it's at. We, we need to flip our thinking around. It's his welcome of us that matters. It's his acceptance of us that we need. In the end, we know Christ does everything that's needed to make us acceptable to him, like we saw last week. He's the way that we're washed, purified. He's the way that we're made acceptable. That's what the cross is about. All that matters now is our response to him, not our welcome, our response. Well, come back with me to the story where we see Jesus help this man come to an adequate response to him in verse 49. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. He wants Jesus there. He's, he's calculating in his head. You can see it. If we leave now, we'll get there by tomorrow, mid-morning, and maybe just that will be in time. But what Jesus does next, he doesn't expect. Verse 50, Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. Jesus is brilliant here. These people, Galileans, who are only interested in seeing signs and wonders. But what sign do they get to see? None. And to this man, there's no sign either. Instead, Jesus gives him his word. He's got a promise. And he's got an opportunity to move beyond belief in signs to truly believe in Jesus. Jesus is, is challenging this man's assessment of him. He's exceeding it. He promises to do something more powerful than, than the royal official could imagine. He promises to heal long distance. Who does that? How do you do that? I mean, what precedent in history, even in, in the Bible, is there of that? And we read what this man does. In verse 50, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. His belief has been lifted beyond the signs to start to believe in the one the signs point to. Now imagine, you can imagine that trip, Pat. You know, maybe he doubted, was Jesus for real? Was his word worth believing? Have I wasted my one last chance? Should I, I tried harder to get him to come with me? It was probably a long afternoon and, and an, an even longer night. 
But the next morning we read in verse 51, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour, about one. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And then we read, so he and all his household believed. Jesus has lifted this man's belief from from just seeking healing from self-interest to something that's ongoing and real. Jesus is not really interested in a mass of superficially believing people. The kind of belief he wants is an entrusting of self to him, not not a kind of self-serving interest, not an intellectual assent, not a religious functionality. Jesus wants a relationship, a relationship of belief where people take him at his word. That's where where the signs are supposed to take us. If you just look a couple of verses before this story back, the people in Jerusalem, they believed in Jesus because of what they saw, but that was inadequate belief. But look at the Samaritans in verse 41. We read, because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. We know that this man really is the savior of the world. Their belief moves beyond what they see to what they hear. God is is the speaking God. Jesus is the eternal word. His sheep hear his voice and they recognize him. In the end, the relationship that God wants with us is based on hearing his voice and believing him. It's actually always been that way. From the garden to Abraham to Moses, to now. God wants us to hear him and believe. Don't believe those people who say, you know, if I just see a sign, if God just shows me something, then I'll believe. They might believe that God exists, but they won't believe God in the way that he wants them to. A sign in and of itself will never cause the kind of belief that God wants. Jesus isn't looking for happy groupies. He's not looking for a fan club. Jesus wants people who will hear him and trust him. Another time when I was a student at uni at Wagga, during O-Week actually, around this time of year, we were, we'd always around this time of year do lots of events to try and welcome the new students. There was another Christian group on campus um, this, this particular year and they had a promotion going on that if you signed up with them, you got a free Walkman. Now, that's showing my age. I'm probably getting some blank looks from teenagers here. It's kind of like the granddaddy of iPod, okay? Now they're thinking of a gramophone, but anyway. (laughs) Close enough. You got a free Walkman. Now, this group, they wanted big numbers, and they thought that this promotion was a way to get lots of people in. Well, what do we want for T&E? What do we want for Trinity Northeast? Big numbers? Lots of people here on a Sunday? We want something way, way deeper than that. We want people to encounter Jesus, truly encounter Jesus, a life-changing encounter that changes everything, where together we realise Jesus' absolute significance, 
and what that means for our lives, how it touches every priority, every habit, every desire, where we take Jesus at his word. That's the honour he wants. He wants us to listen to him, to recognise who he is and to give up fighting against him and trust ourselves to him completely. And in the end, that's true belief. That's what John wants us to have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the true love of Christ, that he's not sentimental, that he doesn't just do what seems to be kind without embracing the truth. Lord, we thank you for the way that he lifts this man's faith from something that's not adequate to something that is. And Lord, we ask for ourselves that by your spirit at work in our lives, you would do the same in us. That we would respond to Christ rightly. That we'd take him at his word. That we want to know him for who he is and not simply for what we get from him. Lord, help us to diagnose our own lives to see where we do not have our priorities right, where our response to Christ is inadequate. And change us, Lord, we ask. By the power of your Spirit at work in our lives, change us to have Christ at the center. Changing the way we work, the way we think, the way we are at home, and the way we are here. Lord, give us an adequate belief in him, And we thank you, Lord, that he has done everything to make us acceptable to you. Help us to just accept his sacrifice on our behalf, his lordship and his salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.